I would like to draw your attention tonight to a portion of scripture that I believe is most encouraging to those who are backslidden. I would not want to suggest for one moment that those who are sitting in front of me or even those who are watching online are in a backslidden condition. Only the Lord knows this. But we know what the Bible says about backsliding in general. And one of the prophets puts it this way, the prophet Hosea, My people are bent to backsliding from me. Now what that really means is that every one of us is given to backsliding. Backsliding is endemic to the Christian. It's something that we have to guard against constantly. If we're not going forward with the Lord, then we are backsliding. For there's no such thing as standing still in our Christian lives. And you will know as a believer in Christ, whether you've been saved for a long time or a shorter time, that there is a battle that rages within your heart all the time. It is a great struggle between faith and unbelief. I suppose we're all like the mother of Esau and Jacob. In my devotions recently, I've been reading through the book of Genesis. And again, I was struck by Genesis chapter 25, where it says of Rebekah in verse 22, that the children struggled together within her. She was expecting twins. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And in a, in a very real sense, Every Christian knows what that is like. The sentiments of the Apostle Paul come to mind, and they're shared by Christians in all ages. In Romans chapter 7, from verse 21, Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God, after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's the struggle. There's the conflict. And again, we can think about a man in the Gospels, the father of the young man who needed to be healed, there in Mark chapter 9 and verse 24, the Bible records his words. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. There you have believing and unbelieving in the same heart. A struggle between faith and unbelief. 
Now, in Jonah chapter 2, we see the man of God in the belly of the fish. He's not in a good condition. He has run away from God's will. The Lord has caught up with him. He's been thrown overboard. A fish that the Lord prepared has swallowed him. He's in the belly of that great mammal. And he begins to pray unto the Lord his God. You see, the Lord was still his God. Even though he had gotten away from the Lord. Even though the Bible says that chapter 1 verse 3, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He was trying to get away from the Lord. Yet here he is praying unto the Lord his God. And what does he say? In verse 4, he talks about while he's been in the belly of the fish, he has prayed this prayer. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. This is what we might call the verdict of unbelief against the vision of faith or the feelings of a believer overcome by the prayer of faith. Now no doubt we can see in this text the motions of unbelief are working in the heart of this child of God. Because he says, I am cast out of thy sight. Lord, I'm not in your presence anymore. I've been banished. But yet there is also a sacred determination in his heart To cling to the Lord. Because he says, even though I'm cast out of thy sight, yet I'm going to look again toward thy holy temple. I'm going to look again to the sanctuary. I'm going to look again to that place where the blood is shed on the altar. I'm going to look again to the sacrifice. Because there, there is acceptance with God. Now this ought to be an encouragement to us all. It ought to be an encouragement and a comfort even to a backslider. Here is the way for natural unbelief that's in all of our hearts to be dealt with. As we think of this, the first thing we have to consider is the cause of this unbelief. Notice again what Jonah says here. I am cast out of thy sight. Now why did he say that? Well it's very simple. We've mentioned it already in chapter 1. Jonah had sinned in disobeying the clear command of the Lord. How does the book begin? Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. And that is part of a prophetic formula that you will find throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came unto, and then it will have the person's name. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. There's the Lord speaking to his servant, giving him a commission, giving him a task to perform. So what does Jonah do? Verse 3. He deliberately 
sets out in a direction that is contrary to God's expressed, stated will. Jonah 1 verse 3, but, but, there's a but in Jonah's life, but, this is instead of doing what God said, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. Now, this led to a series of events that culminated in the prophet going down to the bottom of the ocean inside what one preacher called a living submarine. A whale. Now, Jonah didn't intend to be at the bottom of the ocean inside that great animal. But there it is. And we find that God did not commune with Jonah again in a verbal way. didn't speak to him again until after he prayed this prayer. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. It's only then that it says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. The direct cause of Jonah's feeling of desolation and desertion was his own sin. It was his disobedience to the Lord. And that disobedience led him, as it always does lead the backslider, to the wrong place. God said, go to Nineveh. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. Get yourself a Bible map. And you will find that Nineveh and Tarshish were in polar opposite directions. If Nineveh was to the east, Tarshish was to the west. Whatever the direction was, it was the opposite. It was directly opposed to the way that he should have gone. And that's always how backsliding proceeds. When we get away from the Lord and we get out of God's will, we end up in the wrong place. And there's no doubt that Jonah was in the wrong place. Notice that there was also here, in Jonah's heart, a wrong purpose. Verse 3 states it clearly, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. For what purpose? From the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get away from the Lord's presence. Now, there is a sense in which, strictly speaking, that is impossible for any of us. You can't get out of the Lord's presence. Just study Psalm 139. And, for example, you read from verse 7 of that great psalm. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's where Jonah was, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. This is all in response to verse 7 of Psalm 139. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? 
or whither shall I flee from thy presence? How am I going to get out of your presence, Lord? How am I going to get away from the influence of your Spirit? And he gives his own answer. If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. It doesn't matter where I go, Lord. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. Because I'm still before Thee. I'm still in God's presence. I'm still under His watchful eye. So strictly speaking, it's impossible to get out of the Lord's presence. But we can lose the sense of God's favor. What we might call in theology the benevolent presence of God. We can get away from that place where we feel the warmth of his fellowship. Now Jonah wanted to be out of God's sight. He actually says it in this text, Jonah 2 and verse 4, I am cast out of thy sight. He wanted to be out of God's sight. He rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. But when he thought he had succeeded in doing that, he didn't like it. It grieved the heart of this prophet to think that he actually was, in fact, cast out of God's sight. And that, you know, is a wonderful evidence of the grace of God in a man's life. When we consider a real backslider... David the psalmist who sinned grievously against the Lord with Bathsheba. In the aftermath of his repentance he wrote Psalm 51. And he said in verse 11 of that psalm, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Here's Jonah. He tries to get away from the presence of the Lord. The psalmist says, Cast me not away from thy presence. This is a good evidence of the grace of God. You see, sin always takes you in a direction that your regenerate heart doesn't want to go. Sin will always take you to that place that in your innermost soul you do not desire to go. Because you're a child of God. You have a new nature. It's not the way it used to be. And your new nature desires the things of God. And it wants to be right with God. And it wants to be in God's presence and enjoy God's fellowship. So Jonah's disobedience led him to the wrong place. With the wrong purpose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And that sin of his natural flesh also led Jonah to the wrong practice. What he desired to do, he put legs to that. Because the Lord had said in verse 2, Arise. And in verse 3, the Bible says, But Jonah rose up. It looks like he's obeying, but he didn't rise up to go to Nineveh. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Instead of going God's way, the way that the Lord had set out for him to go, the Lord had commanded him to go, Jonah went his own way. 
And what I want you to notice in chapter 1 is that for a time, Jonah looked like he was content in doing the wrong thing. Because he went down to Joppa. Lo and behold, he found a ship that was going to the very place he wanted to go to. He wanted to go in the opposite direction from Nineveh. There's a ship going to Tarshish. Good. So he paid the fare thereof. He had the money to get on. There was room for him. Because he went down into that ship to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Bible tells us at the end of verse 5 that Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. He's content, isn't he? He's content going the wrong way. He's happy to do the wrong thing. He's out of the will of God, but he's sleeping. He's at peace about it. So it seems. And when he should be praying, all the rest of the men were praying. There was a great wind and a great storm and a mighty tempest in the sea, verse 4, so that the ship was like to be broken. This is a massive storm that the Lord sent. And the Bible says, Then the mariners were afraid. Now these men who would sail on ships, merchant seamen, they're not easily frightened. Most men who are seasoned seafarers are not easily frightened by any storm. And a, a normal person, the average Joe, who doesn't travel much on a ship, but might be frightened by the size of waves and the strength of the wind and so on. But the mariners normally would not be a bit afraid because they've been through it before. They've seen it all. They've been there and done that and they would say they had the t-shirt. But the Bible says the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. They were idolaters. They were pagans. But they started praying. What's Jonah doing? He's not praying. He's lying in the sides of the ship, fast asleep. That's the word that's used there. Fast asleep. He's snoring. He's in the land of Nod. When he should be praying, he's sleeping. You know, it can happen that someone gets away from God and they get into sinful behavior and practices and they look like they're happy there. They look like they're quite content to be in that situation. They're in peace. But that's not the end of the story. The disobedience led Jonah then to be with the wrong people. They're idolaters. They're not followers of Jehovah. They're not people who pray to the God of heaven. They're praying every man to his own God. They have their own deities. What's he doing there? Instead of going to preach to the idolaters at Nineveh, he's traveling in company with idolaters and he's not being a witness to them. See this? The mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God, cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them, but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. He's not a witness to these idolaters. Oh yes, later on he did speak of his God. 
but only when it was forced out of him. When the mariners said to him, verse 8, What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And it's just at that point that he tells them, Well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Jehovah, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. Sin and disobedience is always going to be a cause of unbelief. No wonder Jonah said, I am cast out of thy sight. Because he had tried to get away out of the Lord's sight. That was his purpose, according to the first chapter. To flee from the presence of the Lord. To go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so now he says, I am cast out of thy sight. Lord, I'm not in your presence anymore. There you have the cause of unbelief. It's really Jonah's own sin. But of course then, as well as the cause of unbelief, there's the conclusion that unbelief reaches. Then I said, our text records, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. The power of one's unbelief is great because it can make us say and think things that are not true. Do you know that your unbelief could be so strong at times that you may wonder if God has actually left you and make you wonder if you were ever the Lord's at all in the first place? That's how it works. Unbelief always produces wrong conclusions in the heart. Think of Job. In Job chapter 23, from verse 8 down to verse 10, we have the experience of a man of God trying to get in touch with God and he really can't. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Notice, he's on this search for God, and he can't find the Lord. And you compare that with some words in the Psalms. In Psalm 31, in verse 22, The psalmist says, For I said in my haste, here's something I said really quickly, I am cut off from before thine eyes. That's the same kind of conclusion that Jonah had reached. The Lord has dealt with me. The Lord has cut me off. The Lord wants nothing more to do with me. And again, that's repeated, that thought, in Psalm 77. Psalm 77 from verse 7. He asks some questions. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be favorable no more? He feels like the Lord has cast him off. He feels like He's not enjoying His favor. Is His mercy clean gone forever? Doth His promise fail forevermore? The Lord's not answering prayer. I'm not experiencing His mercy. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath He in anger shut up His tender mercies? Listen to this man how he's talking. 
Unbelief always produces the wrong conclusions. And in Jonah's case, to go back there to Jonah chapter 2, there's no doubt they felt great guilt over his disobedience. And he therefore concluded that God had cast him out of his sight. But though the Lord was not speaking directly to Jonah, he was still dealing in mercy with his servant. Jonah was still in the hand of the Lord. See this in chapter 1 verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Why did the Lord do that? Because the Lord is taking a dealing with Jonah. The Lord could have left him just to go his own way. Let him go on ahead to Tarshish. Let him go in that direction. Let him never serve me again. But that's not how the Lord deals with him. The Lord continues to work in his life. And so the Lord sends out a great and a mighty storm into the sea. And it's for Jonah's benefit that the Lord does this. The Lord's dealing in mercy with him. Then again you see in verse 17 another repetition of this phrase. Now the Lord had prepared. In verse 4 of chapter 1 it is the Lord sent out a great wind. Now it is in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish. As we come on down in the book of Jonah, we'll see again that the Lord did something else. In chapter 4 and verse 6, the Lord prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah. And then in verse 8 of chapter 4, or sorry, verse 7, God prepared a worm. And in verse 8, it came to pass when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. See this. The Lord's at work all the way through here. He sends the wind. He prepares the great fish. He prepares the gourd. He prepares the worm. He prepares the vehement east wind. Because the Lord is still Jonah's God. Jonah's not in fellowship with the Lord. He's trying to get away from the Lord's will. But he's still the Lord's child. And he actually confesses it in chapter 1 verse 9. He said to these mariners, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And when that happened, the men were exceedingly afraid and they said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah, if this is true, if you're a follower of the Lord, then why are you not obeying the Lord? Why have you fled from his presence? Chapter 2, verse 1, as I pointed out earlier, Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God. He's still his God. Despite his backsliding, despite his unbelief, despite the fact that he's done wrong, he's still his God. This is why when the psalmist prayed for restoration in Psalm 51, he didn't say, Lord, restore to me thy salvation. Because he never lost his salvation. He said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. That's it. Oh, you can lose the joy. 
So you have the conclusion of unbelief. I'm cast out of thy sight. But there is, thank the Lord, the cure for unbelief. In Jonah's case, this cure is to be seen in the fact that he prays. And in chapter 2, verse 7, you have this wonderful statement. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. This is what faith does. It looks again unto God. Look at our text, chapter 2, verse number 4. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. What a wonderful word for the backslider. What a word for any of us and all of us who might fail the Lord. By faith we can look again. We can look again. Oh, the mercy of God. The cure for unbelief is to pray in faith. Even when we lack what one Puritan called the faith of assurance, we may exercise the faith of adherence and we can cling to him. Because we've nowhere else to go. Now in this statement of Jonah, I want you to see the cure of his unbelief in the obedience of his faith. He said, I will look again. I will look again. Now what does that mean? Well, to look is to do as God tells us. This is what God tells his people to do, to look. Isaiah 45 verse 22, there's how we were saved in the first place. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look to me. That's how you're converted. As the hymn says, there's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for thee. Then look, sinner, look unto him and be saved. Unto him who was nailed to the tree. Look, look, look and live. There's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for thee. In the book of Numbers chapter 21, you've got that story of the children of Israel being bitten by serpents. Moses was told to take a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, set it up in the midst of the camp, and whoever would look toward that symbol, to that serpent, as soon as he looked, he would be healed of his snake bites. And the Lord Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 said, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How are we saved? There's life for a look at the crucified one. Now faith is represented in Scripture in a, in a number of different ways. For example, faith is receiving Christ. To them, to as many as received Him. Faith is described as an eating of His flesh and drinking of His blood. John chapter 6, believing on Him. So that you will never thirst and you'll never hunger again. Faith is a building upon a foundation. Not a foundation of sand, but upon a rock. 
Faith is described in Hebrews 6 as a fleeing for refuge to Christ. Faith is also representing as a beholding of Him. Look unto me. Look and live. And every one of us tonight that is a true believer can remember when we looked to Him once and we were saved. Oh, what a look that was. When the young Spurgeon on that cold winter day went down that side street in Colchester, England to that primitive church and listen to that elder who was standing in for the minister that day stumbling through his words but announcing the text look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else young Spurgeon said that day the Lord enabled me to take a look to Christ that was such that I could have looked my eyes away and was never the same again that's how you're saved by looking to Christ. So then, if you get away from the Lord to some degree, may you not look again? May you not look again, not to be saved, but to be restored? Is this Christian life not all about what Isaac Ambrose wrote a whole treatise on, looking unto Jesus? Jonah, you see, was already a believer. He was already one who had looked. But he said, I will look again toward thy holy temple. And he mentions that temple again in verse 7. My prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. And there's the object of faith. The obedience of faith is to look. The object of faith is what you look toward. And what did he look toward? Well, he says it here. Toward thy holy temple temple. When we think of the temple and the tabernacle prior to that, as we noted in recent messages, they are typical of Christ in every respect, in all aspects, in all the ceremonies, in all the work of the priest. The temple is a type of Christ. Christ is greater than the temple. But the temple spoke of Him. In the temple there was the altar, there were the sacrifices, there was the sanctuary, the holy of holies. Christ Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the holy temple. He's that sanctuary to which we look. And we are accepted in Him. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of this. From verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This is temple language or tabernacle language. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. There it is again. There was a veil in the temple that was rent from the top to the bottom. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God. There's the temple. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. 
Christ is the object of our faith. And it was, in that sense, Christ to whom Jonah was looking or was determined to look that day when he said, I will look again toward thy holy temple. That which speaks in every respect of the Saviour. But as well as the obedience of faith and the object of faith, we have to consider the obstacles to that faith. And I think it's really illustrated in that little word, yet. See, the first part of the text is, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. There's the language of unbelief. I'm no longer in fellowship with God. The Lord's turned his back upon me. I am not in fellowship with God. Yet. In other words, in spite of this, nevertheless, you could say, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Despite many things, despite all things, notwithstanding all the difficulties, notwithstanding the sin and the backsliding, I'm going to look again toward thy holy temple. My prayer came in unto thee, he said, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, verse 7, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. I'm getting back to the Lord. And even though you sin, perhaps even grievously against the Lord, yet you can look again to the blood and righteousness of your Redeemer. This is a glorious truth. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's cleansing from the guilt of sin. There's cleansing from the pollution of sin. Look again. Look again. Despite your own feelings. Despite the fact that like Jonah you may have lost the smile of God's approval. By faith you may look again. Doesn't matter about all the occasions where you've looked before. And then you've gone back again to failure and sin. You can look again. There is no limit to the forgiveness of God. I love to read in the book of Nehemiah where it says of the Lord that He is a God ready to pardon. He's ready to pardon. There is no limit for the believer to the forgiveness of God. Of course we're not to tempt God. And those that are truly saved will not want to do that. But nonetheless we fail Him. We get away from Him. We feel like we're cast out of His sight. But in Psalm 78, verse 38, the Scripture says this, But He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned He His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath. That's the history of Israel. Read about the history of Israel. See the number of times that they forsook the Lord. The Lord brought them out with a high hand out of Egypt. It wasn't too long before they were complaining. There's no water. We're tired of this manna. Always complaining. Always murmuring. Ready to stone Moses. Full of unbelief. Constantly turning aside. And yet time and time and time again. 
He being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not many a time. Turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passeth away and cometh not again. You can read Psalm 78 for yourself. It's a rehearsal of the history of Israel. And how they constantly kept going away from the Lord. Disobeying Him. And yet constantly the Lord was merciful to them. All the time. Restoring them. You see it again in Psalm 106. This is another psalm that rehearses the history of Israel. Just a couple of verses from verse 43 to 45. Psalm 106, verse 43. It says, Many times did he, the Lord, deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. See, the Lord has made a covenant with his people. They are in covenant relation with him. And the word of God assures us he will ever be mindful of his covenant. You'll see that in Psalm 111, verse 5. And it literally means his mind will ever be full of his covenant. He will not forget his promise because he is a faithful God. And so in Jonah's case, the cure for his unbelief was the obedience of faith as he looked to the object of faith despite the obstacles to faith. There was the obtainment of faith. The Lord gave him faith. Jonah said, I'm cast out of thy sight. There he is in despair. An unbelief. Feeling like the Lord has forgotten all about him. The Lord will never be gracious to him again. Yet, he said, I will look again toward thy holy temple. And that's exactly what he did do. Verse 7, at the end of the verse, And my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. Oh, he was accepted. The Lord took him back. And the Lord used him again. And therefore we look at Jonah chapter 3 and what beautiful words these are. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You know, many a believer has found that God is a God of second chances. A lot of times we don't deserve a second chance. But God is a God of the second chance. And it's revealed throughout Scripture how that he took up men again despite their sin and their unbelief. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. I'm reminded of Peter. We looked at this recently where he denied the Lord with oaths and curses three times. Denied the Lord before the cock crowed twice. And there he is the last time we see him before he was on the beach. He's warming his hands at the fire with the enemy. And he's weeping bitter tears. Because the Lord looked at him. And he remembered the word of the Lord. And he repented. Wept bitterly. But what do we find? 
We find in John chapter 21 that he's out there in the fishing boat with a bunch of others, seven of them in total. They see the Lord on the land at the fire of coals. Peter can't wait to get out of the boat to go and see Jesus. He he throws himself into the water with just his fisher's coat around him and he gets to the beach. And there the Lord takes personal dealings with Peter and he does for Peter what he did for Jonah where the word of the Lord came to Peter the second time, because the first time the Lord said to Peter, John chapter 1, follow me. And in John chapter 21, you see the recommissioning of Peter, where the Lord says to him, follow me. Follow me. Peter's back in harness. Peter's back where he ought to be, serving the Lord rather than denying him. Jonah looked again, to the holy temple and God's word came to him again. The Lord spoke to him again. The Lord communed with him again. The Lord commissioned him again. Oh, we can overcome our natural unbelief and we can find mercy at the throne of grace time and time again. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't we need mercy? Don't we need grace? At times I may not articulate my unbelief. In other words, I might not say the thing openly, but I'm thinking it in my heart. The Lord knows that because He reads my thoughts. And I'm full of unbelief. And the Lord has to come to me and say, look, you need to look again to my holy temple. We change, He changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Psalm 136, over and over and over again, says, For his mercy endureth forever. We can't use up the mercy of the Lord. He will always take us back as his people. So let us again look to him and to his holy temple. If in any way, shape, or form we've gotten to the place where we've turned aside. Let's think about what it says in Psalm 5 and verse 7. For it's similar to what Jonah said. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Oh, may we look again to Christ. This is the cure for backsliding and for a wandering spirit looking again to Christ. He will take us in. The story of the prodigal, of course, applies in the gospel, but I think it also applies to one who has, in some degree and measure, gotten away from the Lord. I love to think of that. The son who's gone into the far country and wasted his substance with riotous living. The whole time he's gone, the old father's out there on the veranda looking to the horizon to see if there's any word of his son coming back. And he does it day after day after day, week after week, month after month. Until that one day when he sees through that hazy shadow of the sun 
a form beginning to come into shape in the distance. And the father realizes the son is coming back. But he doesn't wait for him. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to go inside and sit down and I'll just let him come groveling to me. No, the father leaves his house and he begins to run. The father begins to run and gets right to where his son is. He falls on his neck and he embraces him and kisses him. And we know from that story in Luke chapter 15 how wonderfully he was restored to the fellowship of his father in the father's house. This is what the Lord does for his people. He is married to the backslider. There is no divorce with God when it comes to his people. He will always take us back. So may we always look again to that holy temple.